0: Welcome back. It's the Now News panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joey Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Let's get into our next topic. The Ontario government says hospital patients awaiting spots in long-term care may be moved to nursing homes up to 150 kilometres away while they wait for a spot in their preferred home. If they refuse, they can be charged $400 per day. Health Minister Sylvia Jones says this is part of a broader conversation about hospital capacity.
1: Those conversations include, yes, we will need to charge if you refuse to take the, the long-term care bed that we have found for you.
0: Long-term care minister Paul Calandra says people will not necessarily be moved the maximum distance away, but it gives hospital coordinators flexibility in placements. In many of the areas of the province, including, including of Toronto, there are Toronto and many of our larger cities, London, Windsor, Ottawa, there are many more homes available, much closer than that. But as you can appreciate, as you just started getting some of the rural parts of, of the province, uh, uh, that distance between homes already is, is, is larger. The government says couples will not be separated, and that religious, ethnic, and language preferences will be respected. Michelle, because I so poorly mismanaged the clock, uh, do it talking about Pierre Paulev, I'm curious if you kind of have one crux of the crux of the issue question to sort of relay here to frame this conversation.
2: Sure, well, I feel like this issue might be a little bit more familiar to the AMI audience in general than maybe it is further afield, because we, as we do looking at things through a disability lens a lot of the time, have had to talk about this a lot, about people who are being held either in hospitals or in long-term care facilities, when it's not necessarily appropriate for them to be there, when they're not the facilities of choice for people that they would have opted to pick and, and be near, when they've been cut off and isolated from families. We're seeing a lot of those kinds of objections being raised now with this policy, which stands to be applied a lot more broadly in the service of trying to alleviate some really, really stretched emergency room capacity. So I felt it would be something that we really should sink our teeth into, uh, especially through the context of all the rhetoric that's come out through COVID about the importance of having access to family, about the importance of limiting your social isolation, specifically for seniors who do stand to be disproportionately impacted by this new policy.
0: Joita, do you see that intersection between the experience of people with disabilities and the framing of this new policy?
1: Uh, I do to an extent. Um, I think this policy, I was looking into this a bit more, will impact about 1,800 hospital patients. So these are patients who are in acute care beds in hospitals who uh, will be moved to uh, long-term care facilities um, far uh, as far as 70 kilometers away. And in the first... Or 150 s- in the north. Or 150 in the north, which is even worse. I mean, come on. Uh, but uh, in, um, in doing so, what the policy projects is that That this will, in the first six months, free up about 250 emergency room beds, which at first blush seems like a lot, but it really isn't all that much. It's one of those poorly conceived policies where people with disabilities and chronic health conditions have become the casualties of uh, political decisions that have been... Uh, a long time coming, and we're paying the price for this now. One of the things we forget about the Ontario healthcare context is that in the '90s, under Mike Harris, Ontario deliberately closed hospitals and deliberately reduced capacity. God knows why. Sorry for editorializing. Uh, because That's here okay. we, because That's what the it, because, because <laughs> you know here we are now reaping the the consequences of that. But uh, according to uh, some findings by the Ontario Health Coalition, there are still hospital facilities uh, and acute care facilities that exist. That means the infrastructure is there, but they need to be adequately staffed. So this there are other ways to increase the capacity of our emergency room and acute care and hospital facilities. Uh, I recognize that hospitals often become the places where and people end up staying because they don't have appropriate and adequate long-term care facilities or but um, and that hospitals may not be the, the best place to go. But shunting people off to 70 kilometers away, 150 kilometers away is not the answer. The answers are far more systemic, and I think we don't turn to look at those answers, and we don't generate political will around those answers, what we tend to go to are these band-aid solutions, which deeply disadvantage vulnerable patients and their families. Now, with that said, I am curious to see if they'll actually go through with it, because there will be, uh, I am sure, a lot of blowback. I can just see the the headlines now, you know, so-and-so is 77 years old. She is an elderly wife w- visiting her husband, seven, who, who is 90, you know, 90 kilometers away. There's going to be tremendous pushback. And I would be very curious to see if the government actually goes through with this. Uh, but yes, there are definitely resonances with the way in which people with disabilities have been institutionalized and removed from family contexts. But I would also hesitate to draw a line from, say... Uh, the institutionalization of people with uh, cognitive disabilities uh, and and, and uh, other intellectual disabilities where instead of institutionalization, perhaps the solutions could have been with community housing or community living models. I was hesitate to go from there to, you know, we're talking about people with very severe health conditions, for example, someone dealing with addictions and withdrawals. That's a situation where I don't think you can do community care. I think that is a situation where that person probably needs a very high level of specialized care, and we do need to provide adequate long-term care facilities, but we just don't have the capacity right now. And as I said, that's because Ontario has the lowest per capita availability of hospital beds compared to any other province in the country.
0: Michelle, you heard the word you heard the word band-aid in Joita's response there. Does it feel perhaps at all like we're just shifting resources around the Titanic right now as opposed to addressing some of the fundamental flaws and also really kind of cutting people out of choices about their own health care?
2: I, I would definitely uh, say that it does have that kind of shifting vibe to it of, okay, well, you know, the, the healthcare capacity is overstrained, we'll shift it all to the long term care sector. That'll be fine. Uh, which itself raises questions that we've tried to bat around here a little bit about whether you can have discussions about the healthcare sector without involving the long-term care sector directly, because they are so, so interlinked. Um, so the, the policy is is baffling on, on on a number of levels and has raised a lot of questions, but the main parallel I wanted to draw with the disability aspect, just to clarify matters, isn't so much between the actual circumstances in the community living piece. It's more of the, the pattern that we've seen before that a practice that has been in long use, specifically targeting the disabled population, is now coming under broader scrutiny and getting a lot more attention because it's being applied more broadly. That's something that I think we have seen before is that it doesn't – something doesn't often register on the radar until it starts Mm -hmm. to affect uh, a a different segment of the population. Yeah, Michelle. That's the kind of – I remember, Sorry,
0: go ahead, I remember during the pandemic, we talked about that with a lot of mask accommodation in the United States, people flashing the ADA around, the American with Disabilities Act, and then being horrified mm-hmm. to find out, oh, wait a minute, accommodation doesn't mean I get exactly what I want.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, there's, there's several uh, levels of reckoning that will have to take place if this policy goes ahead, I think. Uh, and even if it doesn't, there's a lot of questions and, and discussions that will need to happen. I, I actually suspect the government will go ahead with it. They, they have a majority mandate. They certainly don't need anyone else's help to enact this policy I suspect it will go through and uh, it's those subsequent conversations that I, that uh, feel a bit familiar to me, I think.
0: Joita, because we're so pressed on the clock, I'm afraid we're going to have to skip your topic, so I'm actually going to come back to you to elaborate further on something you mentioned there that Michelle responded to which is this government in Ontario does occasionally throw out policy as litmus tests and then will sometimes back off after public pressure. Do, do you feel, with the, with the uh, context that Michelle put on there, with the resounding majority they hold in in the provincial parliament along with the fact that there's not going to be another election for three and a half years if not more that that they might actually not back off on this policy at all
1: oh it's hard to say dave you're asking me to predict what their government's I know, gonna I know. do um, you um, you know, no, it's, it's, a, it's a fair it's a fair question um and i honestly don't know i think we shouldn't entirely discount. Um, As the government sort of, you know, yes, they've got three years left on the clock, but this is the kind of policy that could generate a lot of blowback. So I wouldn't discount the possibility that the government moderates its approach a little bit. Uh, For example, they might, you know, continue with the policy, but uh, look at the penalty. uh, You know, $400 a day is prohibitive. It's um, yeah. it's it's over $2,000 a, uh, a week. And so maybe if they get a lot of pushback from families and people, we might see some tweaking of this policy and some modifications of the policy. Maybe they'll reduce it to like $200 a day or something. Uh, but I think there are much bigger problems here that we don't have the time to delve into, and frankly, I'm not a health policy expert, so I'll just come right out and say I don't have the expertise to mm. delve into. Uh, but I think that the government is missing an opportunity here to uh, really look at our health system critically and try and address those gaps in a way that doesn't disadvantage patients in the way that it clearly is.
0: Joita, what do you make of Michelle's question in regards to the possibility of, of dealing with long-term care and health care as separate portfolios or, or what the separation could be? I know you just mentioned I'm not a public health expert, mm. but do you think it's it's conceivable to keep those two files separated?
1: I don't know if it is on a practical basis. Um, I think long-term care homes aren't retirement facilities. They often do work hand-in-glove with the healthcare system. So while we have to stop using – while there has to be some political will to stop using the long-term care sector as a warehousing facility for patients – Um, I mean, there are political questions here, but I just don't know if you can practically separate out the two. I I have a very hard time conceptualizing a situation where long-term care does not have a very deep and long-lasting relationship with our uh, hospital and healthcare sector.
0: Michelle, you heard Joita mention that perhaps with the litmus test approach this government sometimes takes, that maybe we start nibbling at the margins here, saying, oh, it's $200 a day or it's $150 a day. Could you imagine some sort of uh, switch like that based on public pushback? (laughs)
2: I, I can yes um, another potential option was that they would that maybe they would reduce the uh, the distance parameters a little bit make it you know 50 kilometers and 100 kilometers or something like that rather than say 75 and 150 and if that happens they would position it as a we listen to the people kind of win that's that's how it would be presented I'm sure um, so yeah that kind of, of, of smaller bit tweaking I can certainly imagine that but I don't I, I'm going to go on record and say I can't. I would be very surprised, uh, and I'll do something stupid on air like sing or something if it gets fully revealed. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh Guys, we have to get out of here. Michelle, thank you for your time today.
2: Thank you. Have a great weekend, and everybody.
0: Joita, I promise you we're going to get to your topic next week. I know we've been holding this one in our <laughs> chamber for a couple of weeks now, so we're going to get to it too. next week. I promise <laughs> it is a good one. Uh, Joita, thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Michelle McQuig is the Weekend News Editor at the Canadian Press. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.
2: This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. I'm Arthur Shepherd of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.